Welcome to the X29 Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Metters. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the X29 Podcast. And we have our second mailbag episode. And today we have the great, the venerable, the wonderful Jen Wilkin. How are you, Jen? I'm good. (laughs) Have you ever had the venerable put before you? I have not. There you go. Okay. Well, as you guys know, these mailbag episodes, we're just throwing questions that you send in on Instagram. We threw them to our president, Matt Chandler, and now we're going to be throwing them to Jen Wilkins. So Jen, here's the first question. This comes from Matt Chandler. <laughs> Is it true that pugs used to be guard emperors? Tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, from what I understand, you know, from the internets, that's absolutely true. Um, I I feel safe every day knowing that there are two small furry lap dogs who are looking out for my best interests. Is this from like a Wikipedia page or what's, what's the sources? What are your sources? You know, it's been a while since I Googled it, Jeff, but it's a pretty pervasively known fact. So I just feel like next time you have a few minutes, look it up. Bless yourself. Yeah. Yeah. When you post pictures of your pugs, I do a shiver goes down my spine. Yeah. Fear. Yeah. And yeah. So, you know, this is his new way to harass me. It used to be back in the day that he just (laughs) harassed me for owning pets. And then he acquired, oh, that's right. Horses in addition to dogs. And so the mockery had to change because he now owns way more animals than I do. So now it's about whether my dogs are fierce enough instead of about how silly it is that I own dogs in the first place. That's perfect. You know, and I think a tradition has started where you know, Matt was our previous mailbag guest and he's now harassing and messing with our next guest. So whoever our next mailbag guest is, I get is, to I harass need, them. You, you get to send in a, a question that, that messes with them. Sweet. Perfect. Okay. Well, I took some of the questions that were all sent in and I tried to organize them by categories. And so this, this first batch that I want to go through is some kind of uh, womanhood, uh, being a parent, being a mom kinds of questions. Okay. Great. First one, what's your favorite thing about being a mom? Um, well, currently it's enjoying my children as adults. So, you know, like when they're little, you do a lot of laying down the law and as they get older, you get to swap all of that for that relationship piece. And so Jeff and I really feel like this is a, we have enjoyed every season of parenting and that's not to say they were all easy, but we have enjoyed them. We've really enjoyed our kids. And, um, this particular season where they become your actual friends has been really, really fun. And so like, for example, I, I grew up with four brothers and I watched my daughters be sisters to each other and thought, man, that seems like a really sweet gig, you know, to have a sister. I'd never even really thought about it. And now that they're adults, they're my best friends, you know? And so it's like, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is almost, it's like my shot at having um, the experience of sisterhood, even though they're actually my daughter. So that's been really fun. And then the boys, you know, they're they're just great it's fun to see them be men and um and and we all just laugh a lot we really enjoy each other yeah yeah that seems great my daughter's 12 and just the more that she's gotten older we're watching shows together and yeah. laughing about jokes and certain stuff like this is really fun yeah and it's it. so funny because like you're getting into that phase where like you'll show them your favorite movie and you're like if they hate this i don't know how i can continue <laughs> in this you know like we show i remember we showed the kids what about bob and i'm like Oh, if they man. do not like what about Bob? How can how can we continue on in relationship? Yeah. They love it. I watched that for the first time last year. 
I died laughing. Well, yes, yeah, so, so, so great, so great. <laughs> if I if I fake it, I don't have it. You know, like all, all that kind of, it's so good. So listeners, go watch uh, What About Bob? Yeah. Okay. How can a stay-at-home mom take a meaningful Sabbath? Oh yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it depends on what you are requiring from your Sabbath experience. Um, I think a lot of times we confuse Sabbath with self-care. Uh, I hear self-care language a lot among yeah. young moms, and Sabbath is not self-care. Sabbath is the ceasing of labor for the purpose of worship. So I would say that while you may have a hard time carving out like an entire day where you're not doing um, things for your family, uh, bear in mind that's a season of life, right? It's not always going to be that way. And so do your best to prepare beforehand. So if you know that, um, and I don't want to get into the Sabbatarian mess right now, sure, just sure. for the sake of this conversation, let's say we all acknowledge that there should be regular periods of, of rest in our lives, um, yeah. a Sabbath principle, if we can't agree on a Sabbath yeah. practice. So bearing that in mind, um, you have to, Sabbath requires preparation. It doesn't just happen when there's a still moment. And particularly for a young mom who is responsible for the, being the primary source of care for other small humans, uh, you got to plan in advance to carve out that space. And that means you probably have to do a little more work on the day before or the time before you're going to, to, um, to, uh, practice a Sabbath yeah. rest. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's really good. But and also do any... don't beat yourself up because it's, it's tough when kids are little. Yeah. And it looks different for everybody. Yeah. Um, and it's, you should have help. You need help. Have y'all done any stuff on the Sabbath on knowing faith? Any episodes and stuff on that? Uh, I'm sure no, find it. we have no, yeah. but I, I wrote a chapter on it in my Ten Commandments book. If you want to oh, read about boom. it there, there you go. And I think yeah, I did a talk at TGC a few years ago. Uh, I did for sure on uh, on Sabbath in Deuteronomy. Okay, yeah, which you could great. probably find. Okay, so next question, and I want to caveat this, just put a disclaimer. So I have not edited these questions. We have just organized <laughs> them. I I am not putting these forward and implying anything with anything that's asked. Okay. I, I, maybe we fixed grammar for anything that came up, but uh, me and Christy Britton and the team at X29. So here we go. Number three, what are some practical ways to practice having a quiet spirit before your husband? Oh, yeah, this is a good question. Um, and the reason it's good is because, so it's coming from First Peter 3, right? Um, the household codes. And um, so it's always important to give a lot of care to something that is that rooted in a particular cultural moment as the household codes were and say, what is the transcendent principle? Um, this one's actually a little easier than some others um, because uh, in later on in first Peter, we see Peter commend gentleness to everyone. Yeah. And so uh, also, if you're familiar with the list of the fruit of the spirit, gentleness is one of them. And so we know that it's not just that we should have a quiet and gentle spirit toward a spouse. We should have a quiet and gentle spirit, period. That is part of sure. how we um, live out the one another's together. Now, it is interesting that it gets mentioned in in this relationship of, of wife to husband. Uh, First Peter 
Peter is specifically addressing wives of unbelieving husbands in a, in a Greco-Roman culture where the husband had the power of life and death over his spouse. So um, there would have been a particular vested interest in a woman who found herself in that much of a power differential taking care in the way that she interacted with an unbelieving husband to yeah. whom she would have become a social liability when she converted to Christianity. So I, I don't think that transcends, uh, but I do think that what transcends is the idea that in our closest personal relationships, we are often the slowest to regard that person as worthy of neighborly treatment, the way that we would treat, that we would love our neighbor. So um, I would say, look at the way that you exhibit a quiet and gentle spirit toward people that you know in passing or toward your friends and ask, do I apply that same principle to the people who live under my roof or do I see them as people I can be harder on or harsher toward? Yeah, that's good, Jen. Thank you. And it reminded me too of, um, you know, Jesus is, he says about himself, I'm gentle and lowly yeah. and, and heart. Like this is, this is not a bad thing or yeah. a demeaning thing. Or, um, and it's not a uniquely feminine, uh, yes. quality. Yeah. Yes. Amen. Okay. This, this feels very apropos for you. Uh, I think are, are about to be, how do we survive with an empty nest? All of my <laughs> children are leaving me. They put an exclamation mark on the end. <laughs> Well, first, what you do is you go buy a package of Oreos, and then you curl up in the fetal position on your couch. Uh, some and double you stuff? Eat the Are you regular? I'm a double stuff girl. The kids yeah. like um, the regular ones, but you know what? They don't live here anymore, so That's I get right. to buy the double stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's hard. Um, you you do begin to realize how much raising children has defined your existence for many years, and I think a lot of people carry shame around that because they think, oh, my identity is supposed to be rooted in Christ. Why is this so hard for me? And so I do always like to remind moms and dads um, that it's okay for that to have defined many years of your life. Um, Often we pit love of children against love of Christ in a way that I think is unhelpful. Our love for our children as Christ followers is actually an expression of our love for Christ. They are not pitted against each other. And so it's appropriate and right that you would feel the loss of a season of life uh, as you move into the next one. So I think you got to let yourself feel it. And then you got to, you know, the hard part about this stage of life that Jeff and I are finding is like, we actually thought, yeah, 18 years and then they're gone. Like we didn't, but you kind of have that in your head. And then you're like, oh shoot, I still feel all the same level of emotion toward them, but I have absolute zero control over what happens next. Uh, And they might ask for my opinion and advice and our kids do, but you're still always like sort of hanging on the brink of like, I just don't want anyone to be sad. Right, and sometimes right. they are, and you feel it all from a distance now instead of under mm-hmm. your roof, but you also feel their joys as well. Yeah. You can't grab them and hug them like, I yeah. love you. And it's hard. Yeah. Oh, it's tough. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have no idea how, how to answer this question. I couldn't answer this question. Only you could on this call. <laughs> Favorite thing about being a woman. Oh, um, vulnerability. I think it's the gift of womanhood. We, we grow into adulthood without losing a sense of vulnerability. We have biologically programmed seasons of life in which we um, are physically vulnerable. And even into adulthood, we're able to be overpowered, you know, in a, just any, in a, in a setting, like say we're walking down a dark street and that sounds like a, you know, that sounds like a bad thing, but um, the Lord has designed our physical bodies, our physicality 
to remain aware of vulnerability even into adulthood. And so I think what it does is it gives women eyes for those who are vulnerable. It gives us um, uh, quick feet to help those people, and um, which is not to say that men don't see and react right, toward the right. vulnerable. But I do think that our lived experience means that it is more top of mind for us. And when yeah. we celebrate that in our, in our churches, um, the vulnerable are seen and reached um, quickly and thoroughly. So I, I love that that's something that we bring to the table that, that, and I, I think also what we help is we help men rediscover the beauty of vulnerability um, because they, they, you know, across the spectrum, they, they tend to outgrow that, that sense with the, just in their physicality. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Hallelujah. Okay. What are some parenting game changers that you do again for sure? Uh, the number one idea that shaped our parenting for the better was the idea of, was recognizing that our children are our neighbors. So uh, they're not just problems to solve or um, tiny uh, work requiring people who live in our yeah. home. They are our neighbors. And so the command to love our neighbor as ourself is incumbent on us with regard to our kids. And so it's basically just children are people, you know? Yeah. And so then you, you're not going to use a tone that is demoralizing or dehumanizing with your child. Um, you're going to be strong in enforcing the rules that enable a family to live in community together, but you're going to do so in a way that's loving and, and uh, gracious and that is building us up together in love instead of using shame or anything like that. So that would be the, the number one principle, I think, that had an had a, just a deep impact yeah. uh, on, on the way we thought about parenting. That's so good. I, I think that does revolutionize parenting, marriage, everything. Yes, like absolutely. The, go, the golden rule, like how would you want to be treated in this situation? Right. Do it, do it that way. Right. That's so good. Okay. I, I'm excited about this question. What is keeping you and your husband, Jeff, from writing a parenting book? <laughs> is there breaking news? I, I don't know who submitted this. Maybe Kyle did. I, I don't know. I, I could go and check, but... Or do we have breaking news on the Exponent podcast? Yeah, abject fear. No, actually, it's our, it's our, a lot of it is just our schedules and other things I want to write on and um, trying to be mindful of our children's right to, yeah, to develop into full fledged adulthood without having to, you know, it's already weird enough. You, you have your, your kids are, are PKs. So you get this, but yeah. for my kids, you know, uh, whatever platform I have came along sort of later in our parenting cycle. And I'm thankful. I'm really thankful, but, uh, they don't need to be scrutinized. They're good. Mm. They're good kids. They're not, you know, but, but they, they are allowed to, to make mistakes. Um, they are allowed to learn and grow just like any other children are. And so I think I've just been hesitant to present as an expert on something that no one feels like an expert on <laughs> right. All, anything that Jeff and I have to say on this is it's, it's from our experience and, or, or from wisdom that we have gleaned from other people that worked in our particular family. And I think the other thing is, is Christians want a book that is a silver bullet for parenting. That's right. And every family is so different. And so then you look around you at the atmosphere on social media, in our culture in general, and it's like, you can't win uh, trying to write a book that just offers a wisdom principle because everyone will take it as law and shout you down if it doesn't work. Yeah, that's good. That's but we good. might, we might at some point, you never know. Yeah, I hope you do at some point. Yeah, at some point. Okay, so we have a bunch of questions related to uh, ministry and like launching studies and stuff like that. 
but I, I feel like you, you've answered a bunch of those before in other venues. Um, so you can just do them rapid fire if, if you want. Okay. Um, should I assign homework for our women's study group? I know how to answer that. Yes. So <laughs> follow up. How do I incentivize them to actually do the homework? Yeah. Um, there's a saying that I love to quote, and I hope I don't hack it up right now, but it's, it's, it's Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. He's an author. And he says, if you want people to build a ship, you don't gather supplies and tools. You teach them to long for the enormous immensity of the sea. Yeah. And that's what we need to think about. It's not, you don't keep saying homework is the best. Um, you tell them, uh, you know, knowing God is the best. <laughs> and, um, and like all other aspects of discipleship, it is a labor. It is a labor of love, but it is a labor. And then you raise the bar. People gravitate toward things that are hard things that are easy, they assign a low value to. And so what we have done too often is say, you know what, they won't come if it's harder if we ask them to do this. Mm -hmm. And the reality is they're running marathons, they're doing Whole30, they know how to commit to hard things. Um, And when the church messages, this won't be hard, we also communicate this is of low value. So you you gotta set the expectation for them, um, encourage them, and one of the key things I do to keep them uh, doing the homework is I teach to the homework or through the homework in my teaching time that the teach the, the homework becomes the outline for the teaching. So I'm resolving the dissonance that the homework is raising. That's the other thing is a lot of times the homework we give is just busy work. Yeah. Give them homework that makes them question that hits them in the gut. And then that does not resolve the tension for them. And then start to resolve that tension as you go through the teaching time and reference the homework regularly. Let the teaching move at a pace that is just fast enough that if they didn't do the homework, they feel like they're missing a few things. Uh, and then they get curious and, and they, they want to do the homework. Yeah. Okay. It's good. Kind of a, kind of a follow up to, to that arena question comes in new lead pastor's wife here. How do you combat a toxic women's ministry culture? <laughs> it depends on what what yeah. kind of toxic what, what kind it of is. Toxicity. Yes. Yeah, it depends on what kind of toxic it is. I think that generally a good approach is not to hit the reset button and torpedo the whole thing, but there might be situations where that is necessary. But what is I think better is to one of the reasons that women's ministries get toxic is because there are no term limits on those who serve and there are no job descriptions for their for their contributions. And so if you build a team around specific uh, roles and then you have specific periods of time for which people will serve, and I think two years is about the right length on that, then you have off ramps for people who might be bringing toxicity into that space. And so probably the first step, if you've got a toxic situation would be to say, okay, you know what, we're gonna change the format of this team. You know, here are the roles that we have, who's gonna take on what, we'll evaluate this, you know, in a six month, since it's brand new, we'll evaluate how you feel about your role in six months, um, but then get those roles in place with term limits so that you can course correct if you need to. But rather than shutting down bad things, it's better to start the better thing and start funneling energy and resources toward that and let the other thing sort of languish a little bit. That's good, so wise, these off ramps and on ramps, so helpful, Jen, that's so good. Okay. What would you say to a young woman wanting to teach the Bible one day? Um, Do it. It's a lot of work and um, know your limits, uh, but don't let your limits keep you from starting. So you got to surround yourself with people who can help you and get good 
access to good commentaries to help you and good training. Don't assume that willingness and the Holy Spirit are enough to get mm. you to the finish line. Uh, and I, I think women don't assume that because they are naive. I think they assume it because they often don't have access to other paths for development. And so I would say the first step would be go to your church leadership and say, I want to do this. How can I be developed in this in a way that means that I'll be teaching in accordance with sound doctrine that's been set by my elders? You know, right. how can I, um, how can I get, what, what basic tools do I need? Cause you're going to need a basic understanding of, of Bible doctrine. You're going to need a basic understanding of the story of scripture. I mean, there are some really basic tools you need in your tool belt. Um, so go and find someone who does this in your church and ask them, what are the steps I need to take? It's always better to have an actual human you can reach out to for help than just the internet or someone like me who's a head on a screen. Mm, yeah, that's good. We had a couple of questions come in that were kind of similar, so I'll try to bring them together. What are the best ways to utilize robust theological female teachers in the local church and maybe just help churches see the value of female voices? Yeah, well, it depends a lot on where you land on the complementarian spectrum. So uh, this is what makes these conversations hard is I can't speak for all churches right. on this, certainly. Um, the more conservatively you lean in, in your complementarian convictions, the more important it is for you to resource single gender learning environments, because otherwise there are no spaces for women to exercise the gift of teaching in the local church, which is why if you're paying attention, there are many parachurch organizations that women are leading that are doing this kind of work. They find no home, no foothold in the local church in which to exercise their gifts. And so they have to go outside of the local church. Um, I believe that God does not give gifts that are not essential and indispensable for the flourishing of the church. And so if a woman has a legitimate teaching gift, there ought to be a place in the church where she can exercise it. So the more conservatively you lean, the more onus there is on developing single gender spaces where women can, can teach the Bible to other women. Um, but the more, um, you lean toward an expansive practice, the, uh, then you just need to exercise a little creative thought. Um, what often happens is we default to putting a male teacher in the room because we know him better or we trust him or he has a proven track record. Right. Typically women are not going to have the same number of reps or experience that men do. They may have a, a raw ability or gifting that hasn't yet been fully uh, vetted or developed. And so you can decide, you know, what on-ramps can we have for this, this female voice to be ready to step into uh, a space where we might have both men and women uh, on the teaching platform, but set her up to win. If that's where you land, don't send her in unprepared because, um, you know, just because she hasn't had as, as much experience perhaps as the male teachers have. So a collaborative teaching team approach is what we see um, working really successfully uh, in the churches that have rolled off from the village and in, in our own setting as well. That's, that's one of the things that we've done is men and yeah. women who are working through the text together, preparing their teachings, either for single gender environments or for environments where they're going to be sharing platforms. Yeah. yeah that's so good. And, and I'll do a little plug for you guys. Um, if, if you're listening or you send in these questions about the Bible studies and environments and, and how to do all these things, uh, go to trainingthechurch.com and you can sign up to be in a cohort and a, a learning group with Jen and Kyle and JT from the Knowing Faith podcast and what they did at the village and also what Kyle's doing at Mosaic and what JT's doing at Storyline. And you can learn more from them directly on, on how to do these things. 
Okay. Um, this question, I know there's a lot probably freighted into it. And so it's hard to unpack just in this one sentence, but this, this person sent in biblical counseling for emotionally abused women, question mark. Oh yeah. That's, um, there's a lot of definition of terms that would need to happen for me to be able to answer that question successfully. I will say biblical counseling actually means a specific thing. So it's important to, to make sure that you understand what you're asking or what you're getting into when you say it. Typically, biblical counseling means nuthetic counseling. It means um, all you need is the Bible and the Holy Spirit, and and you can um, fix whatever problem is going on. And I'm overstating the point, but that's, that's, sure, that sure. is the simplest way to understand what, what biblical counseling typically means is I'm going to use the scriptures to deal with what is primarily a spiritual problem um, that you're dealing with. So at the other end of that spectrum, and again, this is a vast oversimplification, would be clinical uh, counseling. And that is where uh, you, you're relying heavily on science and medicine. And so um, at my own church, we land uh, somewhere in between. We try to blend uh, using counsel from the scriptures with, um, with aspects of clinical uh, counsel that we, we believe are helpful. Again, I can't speak for where your church lands on this, but for a person who is experiencing emotional abuse, I would say your first stop is to reach out to someone on your church staff and and tell them what is happening. And if you're a woman and you're intimidated to do that, because perhaps it's a man who would be the receiving point for you, uh, bring another trusted woman with you, preferably one who is respected by the the man that you're going to go talk to for your comfort and to make sure that you communicate clearly exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. That person should roll you up to professional help of some kind. Um, emotional abuse is serious and should not usually be handled by a staff member who is well-meaning, but perhaps not qualified to handle something of that magnitude. So, um, it may be that there are things that a staff member can help you with, but typically, especially in a smaller church, that's a 911 call, um, in a, not, not a literal sense, but like in a sense of like that person should be looking for someone professionally trained who they can hand you over to. Yeah, that's, that's very helpful. And I, I think, I, I hope that pastors, especially in Acts 29, that you will feel more comfortable um, as you have some of these counseling situations and, and scenarios that run the spectrum to realize that, you know, you may not have professional counseling gifts and that you may need to outsource some things and, and to get some help, which I've had to do in the past. And Acts 29 is launching our pastoral care network. And so we want to resource and have referrals and all kinds of things to help so um, all of our churches. So yeah, so reach out if you need help, even from X29, we'd love to help. And I don't know if this is a help. I'll just drop this in. On our beliefs page on the Village uh, Church website, we actually have our care document out there. You can see how we triage care needs when they come in and and what our response is to different care situations, if that's helpful. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah, definitely go go check that out. Okay, best word of encouragement you give to pastor's wives? Do not quit. (laughs) (laughs) Easy for me to say, right? right. (laughs) Easy for me to say. No, I really think, you know, it's, it's the long game and there are so many short term losses. I think particularly for church planter wives, you know, there are so many short term losses that it can feel incredibly discouraging. And I would say, um, think, I think what we get wrapped up in is, is looking forward and thinking, how are we going to get forward from here with all of these, um, short-term disappointments or setbacks. I mean, especially coming off of a year of COVID, you know, I think everybody's feeling this and I would just urge you, 
um, that while, of course, we want to be forward thinking and forward planning, that steadfastness is actually cultivated not by looking forward, but by looking behind us at God's faithfulness to all generations. So, and also in our own generations and in our own stories. And so when you are feeling particularly beat down, rehearsing the goodness of God to you in previous seasons can, can really help um, reorient your perspective and give you another day to fight. Yeah. Well, I want to transition to some of the kind of Bible and um, theology questions that, that we had come in. Uh, this one was worded differently than I thought it would be. Um, what's the best Bible version to use? I would have thought maybe your favorite, but they're not asking for your favorite. The best. What's the best Bible version to use? Well, I mean, we all know the best is the King James because that's the one Jesus carried. That's right. Uh, that's right. But my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess you could say the best Bible version would be Greek and Hebrew. Right. But for, right for every other person. Yeah. Like, right. what, are we, what are we doing here? Um, I gravitate toward readable translations. So um, I, my church uses the ESV. We've used it for a long time. I like the ESV. I don't think it's the most readable version out there. And because what I am primarily addressing is Bible literacy and pulling people into a working relationship, so to speak, with their Bibles. Personally, if I could get a hold of a sweet NIV 1984, I could die happy. But those are hard to find. But I do think that archaeological stuff now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, But the NIV, I think, is readable. I think the CSB, if you were going to ask, like, on a readability scale, I would say NIV, most readable, CSB, more readable, ESV, less readable, just in terms of like sitting down and reading through a passage. But honestly, with the access that we have to online, um, uh, online sites that can show you multiple translations, yeah, use a major translation that is reliable and compare it. Like if you hit something that is hard to understand, just go out there and see how the other translations have handled it. That's actually a tool that we train in our Bible studies because it's just easy now. What a gift from the Lord that we have that kind of access. And you can see how other translators dealt with a particular passage. And then I'll just say, I know it's growing in people's esteem um, since Eugene Peterson has passed. Um, The message is a paraphrase. And so historically, Bible teachers have frowned on sending people to it because it's not a word for word or thought for thought translation. But TBH, it can be enormously helpful. I would say don't start. Don't make that your primary place that you're going and use it as a commentary almost. But you don't have to avoid it. He's he's going to he's not going to give you every he's he's going to give you his his reading you know, but it's, it can really be helpful in certain passages and then in others less helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It's very fresh, different, makes you go, huh? Yeah. I miss that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So when I'm studying, I start with usually ESV or CSB mm-hmm. and then I check NIV, NLT. Uh, mm-hmm. NLT go has look- gotten great. It's way better yeah. than it back in the day. Yeah. And then King James, I will look at the King James. Mm-hmm. Um, I do look at the message. Uh, I look at yallversion.com. What? Uh, uh, Nathan Campbell. Do you know the y'all version? No. Oh my is it, goodness. Does, is it like the, all the, all the use or all y'alls instead of. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It, gives you, it gives you, yeah, I got this from Nathan when Nathan wrote a Bible study for us. Nathan Campbell's on the team at the village yeah. and he put some Bible study curriculum together for us. And he included one of the homework assignments was go to yallversion.com and type in this passage. He's been holding out on me. Oh man. I thought you guys were using this. Okay. Well, we are now. Yeah, and you, you can even put use guys, you all, y'all. It's been like the reason of the, the region of the country you're in, it, it does that. 
Okay. Are, are there, yeah. <laughs> are, are there any other translations I missed that you go and you would look at maybe in a study rhythm? Yeah, I occasionally will look at the New English translation. That's okay. another one I've started to to see pop up more that that seems to be real. And, and listen, this is my uneducated opinion. I am not familiar with the original languages, so you know that's why I stick to the straight and narrow. I go for the major translations that I that yeah. I I know um, from smarter people than me are are not going to go off the rails. Same, 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 same. Okay, how to deal? How do we deal with the discomfort that? The prophecy of Hosea, the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, portrays unfaithfulness uh, in a woman. Yeah, this is a really important question. Um, And to the women listening, anytime you hit something like that, that you feel like it's just a soul-sucking question, and you start to wonder, is God kind of down on women? Um, Just know that the answer to that is heck no. And, and, and the way that you avoid um, those kinds of readings is to gain an appreciation for the Bible as a whole. So um, if you think about Proverbs, which is a book that in many ways has been adulterated for women in the way that it's been presented to them, and I would say for men as well, what Proverbs present to, uh, presents to us is a picture of two women, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. And so the first nine chapters of Proverbs sets up this contrast between Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. Sadly, they're almost always taught as chapters on adultery for men. Uh, But what they're painting is a picture of what it means to be wise or to be unwise. You will either marry Lady Wisdom or you will marry Lady Folly. And so what gets lost when we chop all this up and then make Proverbs 31 about womanhood instead of about Lady Wisdom, who we're all supposed to marry, means that when you get to Hosea, you don't have the balance of Lady Wisdom. And Israel is being portrayed as having married Lady Folly. They have chased after the the harlot. Um, But there's also Lady Wisdom, and Lady Wisdom is pervasive in the Bible as well. In fact, you get all the way to Revelation, and what do you see? You see the, the, the great whore of Babylon. So Babylon, the city, is characterized as Lady Folly, who now, instead of running through the streets crying out, is seated and garbed and is, um, and, and is you know, is pouring slander from her lips. So she's glorified mm-hmm. in Babylon. And then what do you see? You see a wedding feast, and you see a bride. You see the New Jerusalem wisdom embodied in the new Jerusalem. Uh, And so those two images belong together. And if you only read Hosea, you only see the unfaithfulness. You don't, you don't pick up on the idea of lady wisdom that counters that. Yeah. Man, that's so good. That's why you're one of the best, one of the best Bible teachers of our generation, Jen. Yikes. So so good. Don't give me big words to live up to (laughs) matters. No, you've already done it. You've already done it. Okay. (laughs) Um, which commentary authors do you most recommend when writing a Bible study? It depends, obviously, on whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Um, some of my favorites are James Montgomery Boyce. I, so here's straight up. I gravitate toward um, commentaries that are probably someone's sermon series turned into yeah, helpful Boyce, notes. Lloyd, Lloyd-Jones. Those are very yeah. detailed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I, I love J.M. Boyce. I love um, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner for oh, the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew lights John. out. Incredible. I mean, and pay the, pay for it, own it. Don't don't be like that's too expensive. You get that book. It will help you with with reading any gospel uh, and a lot of other areas of the Bible as well. For the Old Testament, I if Dale Ralph Davis wrote a commentary on it, I want to study it. Like he yeah. is so 
he's hilarious and also just really good. Very conversational in the way that he writes his commentaries. Um, and then um, a slightly controversial choice, or maybe not, uh, John MacArthur. Yeah. He's yeah, still really helpful to yeah. me. Yeah, he's still really helpful to me, you know, for all, any New Testament work. Obviously, I'm, I'm not a dispensationalist, and um, I do wonder if just my existence is um, is a disappointment to him. But other than that, <laughs> I find his commentaries to be a good starting point, particularly as someone who does not know the original languages. Um, he, You know, he'll typically do work around what something meant in, in the original languages that's helpful to yeah. me. I'm trying to think. Who else do you see back there that I should? Be uh, yeah, I saw Bruner back there. I see Boyce. Yeah. Um, I see some Shriner. Yeah. Um, I think. Uh, yeah. Well, I see some of the series. So there's good series that people oh, want to go and grab. Uh, Arthur Pink. I love yeah. Arthur Pink so much. Yeah. yeah you love the AWs. I do. AW Tozer. Yeah. AW Pink. Yeah. And um, and I just I love also um one of the one of the studies I've done that's had the biggest impact on me was the Sermon on the Mount study. And um, Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy is a book that just blew my world away. Yeah. So um, that's a good he, read. He just, you can he see always has profound sentences right there. Yeah. Yeah. There he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Willard's always got something really profound and kind of like Peterson. They'll just have a sentence in there that just makes you sit back yeah. and, and think for a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So kind of related, who are some of the authors and teachers that you enjoy learning from? Oh my gosh, I didn't mention R.C. Sproul, but he doesn't really, you know, commentaries are not, I wouldn't say he necessarily writes commentaries, but he's, uh, that's the, that's the voice that has had the greatest impact on how I teach and why I teach. Um, he had a much broader, obviously, uh, uh, range that he was teaching to and through, but from a Bible literacy standpoint, I basically, you know, came into, um, teaching having done precept Bible studies and Beth Moore studies. And I wanted something that combined the joy that Beth brought to her teaching and just the obvious love of what she was doing, um, with the, with that meaty, um, homework piece that, that Kay Arthur was so good at. So Kay Arthur had a big influence on how I write curriculum. Um, and then I wanted, I wanted to, um, I wanted my love of what I was doing to come through in the teaching and I wanted the teaching to be for the average learner. And that is not a pejorative term. I mean, most of us are, I consider myself to be an average learner. And so I, and what R.C. Sproul did is he gave me the average learner. He opened up the storehouses for me. Mm. You know, uh, he did not shut up the kingdom of heaven for me. He's, he, he invited me into a world of dialogue that I would not have considered I had access to. So that's what I'm trying to do with the, with the teaching and the studies that I'm writing. Yeah. Yeah. And you do that so well. And, and listeners, if you want to find the the hidden paths to these places, read the footnotes and see yes. what these people are quoting yes. and you'll, you'll be a colleague with them uh, reading the same stuff. Yep. Okay. As we get closer towards the end, um, just got some, some kind of daily life questions that, that came in people curious, just how you kind of run your life. Um, what do you use <laughs> to schedule your weeks? <laughs> Uh, Google calendar. Yeah. Google calendar. (laughs) I mean, I have a person who helps me. Um, but in terms of rhythms of weeks, uh, I am caught between two worlds. I'm a writer and a teacher, but I'm also on staff at my church in a role that, I mean, I, I think I have 19 staff members that report to me. So I need days where I think about that 
And then I need days where I have cleared off the calendar to think and read, or at least that are guarded for that purpose, whether I might have to, you know, shove a meeting into one of those spaces occasionally yeah. is okay. And I had to learn that the hard way. I felt like if I just had days that were blocked off for thinking and reading that I was stealing, that I was, you know, like abusing a privilege mm. or something. And then I realized, no, I have to be sure to guard these gifts that, um, that are, that I, that I are also a blessing to my church. You know, they may not be administrative or there may not be deliverables, um, that, that I achieve on a Thursday where I've blocked it off. Um, for that purpose. And actually, just for the record, we are recording on a Thursday right now, Jeff. So that means I worked you into my thinking time. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, so, but learning that I have to guard creative space, not just um, task, task oriented space. So um, Mondays are a prep day for me because I typically teach Tuesday morning and Tuesday evening and have meetings in between those teaching times. And then Tuesdays and Wednesdays are filled with okay. uh, meetings related yeah. to, to my role at the church. Thursdays, I guard for study and thinking. Really, just Monday afternoons are what I'm using to finalize prep. Um, Sunday is obviously a work day for me. Um, and Fridays and Saturdays, I'm off. And often, we'll use those for travel. Yeah, that's good. I do the exact same thing. I yeah. have two two part-time jobs, one with the church, one with X29. I'm a PhD student. I have a sticky note on my computer that says what days I'm working on, what classes and what projects. And it's the only way to keep it sane. Yeah. Yeah, It's the only way. Okay. Uh, how, how have you improved your writing along the way? You know, every writer is growing. Um, so this person's asking, what have you done to improve the craft of your writing? (sighs) I'm an accidental author, so I don't feel like I can weigh in on this with much authority. I don't know that my writing has improved. I am a person of few words when it comes to writing. And like, I will turn in a manuscript and when the book comes, I get that first copy and I'm thinking, why is this so small? Like I <laughs> labored. Word document. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so I'm not the person where they cut out 3,500 words out of each chapter. I am like squeezing blood from the turnip on every chapter. They're making the font a little bigger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah margins. <laughs> a little narrow. Yeah. Um, and so I would say if my writing is any good. It is because I read good authors. I know that's the standard answer, but I cannot say it enough. And I don't mean that I read C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, I did, but it's a wide world out there. And I am sometimes frustrated that it seems that Christians don't move much beyond the most obvious Christian choices when it comes to literature. Uh, Charles Dickens has made a major impact on my ability to communicate. Jane Austen. authors who are so good with words. And then again, I would just point to R.C. Sproul, who I, I blame him for my brevity uh, problem because he, he, he's a master of, yeah. of boiling things down to, to few words. So, um, gosh, you, you know, you, Jeff can see my, my theology bookshelf right now, but yeah. I'm actually facing all of the, all of the literature books. Um, Shakespeare, yeah, you're you're answering the next question. Hemingway. What's your, the next the next question is what's your favorite book, fiction and nonfiction? Uh, my favorite book, fiction. You know, I, it changes from season to season, but I, I keep going back to To Kill a Mockingbird uh, because it's doing so many things in one book. Yeah. It's, a, it's addressing so many things and doing it so subtly and so well. 
So I do love To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Um, nonfiction is tough. I don't actually read a lot of nonfiction, to it's probably be like honest. Louis Burkhoff, his systematic theology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but, but the most recent nonfiction book that I read that I really enjoyed uh, is The Boys in the Boat. Um, Everybody's mentioned I know. This, well, so. it's so funny. I saw, like, Josh, I saw Josh Patterson this week, and he said Boys in the Boat, and everybody's talking. About, Chandler mentioned Boys in the Boat on the last mailbag. Well, so I read, I read it, it was recommended to me by one of the kids' friends and, um, and was really enjoying it. And I mentioned it one day and Josh and Matt just about, you know, they were like, oh my gosh, it's the best book, but they listened to it on audiobook, So they blazed through it way faster than I did. And so I was like, just don't tell me what happens. And Josh is like, they tell you what happens in the first chapter, which is true because it's history. <laughs> so it's not a lot of yeah. spoiler alerts, but it's been really fun to talk about it with them and. Uh, so it's one of those fun, I, I do like memoirs a lot, um, even though they can get a little dark and I'm always like, who writes memoirs? Like you have to totally break ties with all of your immediate family members. If you're going to write a memoir. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's true. It's very, very true. Okay. Final three questions. Okay. This is how we wrap up every, every episode of the x one podcast. So you, you just did kind of answer the, the first one, but I'll ask it anyways. Maybe another title comes to mind. A great book you've read recently that you would want to recommend that's not boys in the boat. That's not boys in the boat. Yeah, uh, Matt mentioned it. We got, we got to get away from these boys in the boat. I'm trying to think what the most recent thing was that I read before that. When I'm in a teaching cycle, I don't read for pleasure. And so it yeah, kind of, kind of dries up a little Was bit. it an Exodus commentary? I mean, it could be any, anything that you've read recently. Romans. I know you guys are getting ready for Romans. I'm sure you, so you've been reading a ton of, have you read Michael Bird's commentary on Romans? No. Out, Should I get that one? It's outstanding. Okay. Yeah, incredible. That's good. That's good. Uh, I can't think. I mean, one of the ones that I read um, fairly recently for pleasure, so to speak. Oh, you know what's awesome? Um, All the Light We Cannot See. There we go. Oh, my gosh. That's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. I, I can't say that I read it recently. It was a few years ago. But it's it's a World War II book, which is a, you know, that's a fun genre for most people. But it is artistically so well done. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to recommend one just because it came to mind okay. for listeners. Uh, I haven't read it recently, but it's just popped up. It's hilarious. The Stench of Honolulu <laughs> by, by Jack Handy, the same SNL guy, Jack Handy. I mean, you will die laughing reading this book. So The Stench of Honolulu by Jack Handy. Go, go, okay, go get good, that good, if, you, if you need some rec. light reading. Okay. Uh, go to order at a coffee shop. What are you getting? Um, black Drip. And if the if they don't have black drip because they're too shishi, then I get uh, an americano. Yeah, oh, americano, just okay. americano. All right, there we go. I mean, I drink, I drink Dunkin' Donuts during oh, the week. Okay. I'm, I don't care. It's not that so bad. Like, pray for you. And, if you put in a little more than they say to, it tastes pretty good. Okay. Yeah. I I, I don't think more badness makes up goodness, uh, makes it goodness. All those but pesticides. I mean, it's it's laced with all kinds of goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like when you see these stories of people, they're like, I'm 115 years old. I'm like, yeah, I think it's all the preservatives you ate your whole yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, get on board. You're, you're pre-mummified. Okay, yeah. uh, last question. Your favorite verse in our sacred text, one, one that you just find yourself going to often, you meditate on often, maybe when you're discouraged, it comes up. Just if, What's a verse that you just find is popping up in your mind and heart all the time? It's Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm. That's, That's it. So good. That's I it. don't know why it still makes me cry, <laughs> but um, I think I, uh, I linking the fear of the Lord to wisdom was was foundational for me and has shaped so much of what I try to write and teach. 
because there's such misunderstanding about what that means. And it's a, an idea that's often just confined to the Old Testament in people's minds that, yeah. that the God we fear is the Old Testament God, um, which the book of Hebrews would, would challenge in a lot of other areas as well. Um, mm. But wanting to walk in right reverence uh, as the way of wisdom was was really, really significant for me. And it's fascinating to me, like, if you listen um, with a with a critical ear, and I don't mean critical in a negative sense, just a, a yeah. very um, attuned ear, you will find that a lot of our language, uh, especially in worship music right now, is about how we have been delivered from our fears and doubts. Like, that's the great enemy. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's our sin. Like, our sin is yeah. what we were delivered from. And um, being delivered from your fears and doubts is not what causes you to worship. It's being delivered from your sin. And we do still have fears and doubts on, on the other side of the cross. We do. And some of them are legitimate. And I think we should acknowledge that. But it's the right reverence toward the Lord, which tells us, whatever my fears and doubts, he's trustworthy. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Have you read Michael Reeves' new book on the fear of the Lord? No. Yeah, I haven't either. I've heard it's outstanding. So it's in that same Crossway series, Union Books, kind of that okay. thing book is into. Yeah, yeah. I need to check it out as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Jen, thank you so much for coming on the X-29 podcast and letting us do this mailbag episode with you. Thanks for having me on. This is a group of churches and people who I care a lot about, and I'm so grateful to have a voice in this. Yeah. Yeah. We love, love having you in the network and sharing and speaking to us and encouraging us. Uh, so we're, we're really grateful for you and we look to you often just for wisdom and help and guidance and, and all kinds of things. So we're really grateful for you, Jen. Uh, listeners, thank you for listening today. We ask you to please leave a review there in your podcast app and share this episode there in your social media feeds, which, which I am sure you will. And so we're so grateful that you would listen and remember listeners, let's keep planning churches to the ends of the earth.